0: Did you know 24,626 apparent opioid toxicity deaths between 2016 January and June 2021 were reported? 24,626. Additionally, 1,720 apparent opioid toxicity deaths occurred between April and June 2021 approximately 19 deaths per day, similar to the period from January to March 2021, approximately 1,792 deaths. This represents a 2% increase compared to April to June 2020, which reported 1,680 deaths, and a 66% increase compared to April to June 2019, 1,038 deaths. Did you also know that in terms of the health risks of loneliness, social isolation significantly increased a person's risk of premature death from all causes, a risk that may rival those of smoking, obesity, and physical inactivity. inactivity. Salutations! Welcome to Spiritual Blitterings, Philosophical Ponderings, and Everything Ramblings at the Hopeful Humanist Café. This is a Just Some Guy production, and I'm that guy, your host, Steve, the hopeful humanist. Today, we're going to talk about Ideas and Flow, the good life, and resources for our spiritual toolbox. Specifically, I want to talk about expanding our dashboards in terms of conversations about COVID. Specifically, I want to look at COVID and mental health and substance use. I always like starting an episode with a quote, and this quote is more or less, the thing I want to emphasize in terms of the information that I'm going to share. It's from a simply.com. That's where I found this quote. Asking for help doesn't make you weak. It reveals strength. Even when you don't feel strong. Even when you don't feel strong. So yeah, thank you for joining me. Uh, I, I want to Put mental health and uh, discussions about substance use on our dashboards of wellness today. I think it's of the utmost importance uh, as we've been having a number of difficult and trying years. I mean we're talking about a stretch of time from the beginning of March in 2020 to the present. Two years later, wow. And, and so one of the questions I, I want to entertain is, you know, what has been the uh, the impact on our mental health and substance use Uh, because of the reality of COVID and different COVID restrictions and mandates and lockdowns. And we've had on our dashboard, and necessarily so, a focus on uh, our concerns about physical health, number of hospitalizations, vaccination rates. And it's important that we we have showcased and highlighted uh, these kind of uh, data, but there's some other things that it's important for us not to lose sight of. So a, like a dashboard is a, a graphic or text user interface that allows us to track key perform, performance indicators that are important to us. And often if you go on the news reports, you'll see on the top there will be daily updates about hospitalizations in terms of Um, COVID and COVID-19. And that's important. But I think that we need to be careful and we need to make sure that we don't limit the scope of our attention. And we need to expand the things that we're looking at in terms of getting a larger sense of how well we're doing in in terms of our mental and physical health. So, I I mean, for me, if someone was to ask what, what do you think are the, the impacts or how has uh, COVID, uh, the COVID-19 pan- pandemic impacted people? Uh, I think one of the first things I'd say is that you know, we've been living in uh, the stress response, uh, pandemic-related stress response for the last two years, and the idea of a stress response is that it's something that engages us and and activates us so that we can take action, you know, the idea of fight or flight. Um, There are new models out there, the polyvagal theory, that I think we should look at at some point, but the idea is that it activates us so that we can do that thing that's going to keep us safe. We're not supposed to stay in the stress response for a long period of time, it's supposed to help us get out of a, a dangerous or risky situation, and eventually we will move into the, the relaxation response. But for two years, I feel that most of us have been in the stress response, and we're, we're struggling with different things, right? So what, what does the COVID-19 pandemic mean you know, for you, the listener, uh, for me, uh, for my neighbor, um for people that I work with, it means different things for different people. It's impacted us differently. I mean specifically I'm fortunate. I'm I guess I'm a part of what you call the Zoom class. And I've been able to go to work and use virtual ser- services uh, to stay employed and continue to provide service for services for people that are in need. And so I'm very fortunate. You know, as a consequence, you know, at times for me, not for everyone I deal with this thing called Zoom fatigue. Um, I, I deal with, uh, you know, choice overload. Uh, for other people, uh, their experience is very different. They're, they're, they might not be part of the laptop or Zoom class, and, and life looks very different. So we're all struggling with different degrees of isolation, you know, that idea of a lack of uh, meaningful social connection because of the different restrictions, the lockdowns. And, and for some, I mean, it would go beyond just uh, this, this sense of isolation to uh, feelings of alienation. And with, with the uh, increased reality of isolation, we have what a lot of people are experiencing now, uh, this thing called loneliness, uh, the feeling of, of being alone. And there are a lot of uh, health implications of loneliness. You know, people say, loneliness kills right? And, you know, I don't often start off my discussions with the did you know, but I wanted those ideas to kind of stick out and and perhaps um, the the stickiness might allow us to uh, carry those thoughts with us and think about uh, what we might need to do in the future if we find ourselves in a similar situation with new variants, right? But, you know, what is it it that we know about the health of risks, uh, the health risks of loneliness? Um, I found this information at... uh, Um, Loneliness and social isolation linked to uh, serious health conditions. It's uh, an article that I'll include in my uh, show notes. It indicates that there are five different things that we might want to keep in our mind's eye. The first one I mentioned, social social isolation significantly increased a person's risk of premature death from all causes, a risk that may rival those of smoking, obesity, and physical inactivity. Um, additionally, socialization was associated with about a 50% increased risk of dementia. Those reduced social interactions are costly. Poor social relationships characterized by social isolation or loneliness was associated with a 29% risk of heart disease and a 32% increased risk of stroke so now we're talking about long-term care homes people that are in their rooms for their own safety their own physical safety but what are the implications in terms of uh, mental health loneliness was associated with higher rates of depression anxiety and suicide right so on our dashboard we're aware of hospitalizations due to COVID-19 but what about on our dashboard information about the rising rates of depression anxiety and suicide Uh, Lastly, loneliness among heart failure patients was associated with nearly four times increased risk of death, 68% increased risk of hospitalization, and 57% increased risk of emergency department visits. So loneliness and and the, the reality of being isolated are things that I think in the future, if we find ourselves dealing with another wave We might want to consider them, and it might shape the way we do things in the future. We might we might do things a little bit differently in terms of COVID-19 and the impacts on our lives. uh, I think we're all struggling with different types and uh, degrees of loss. Someone has maybe lost a a routine that kept them mentally well. Uh, Someone has maybe lost a job. Uh, Someone has lost a loved one. Someone may have uh, lost their home. Right. So we're struggling with both mental and physical illness, and uh, so this means we need to talk about anxiety and, and depression. Uh, according to CAMH, which is the Center of Addiction and Mental Health, a wonderful world-renowned organization for its research on addiction and mental health, they indicate that uh, there's been an increase up to 25% for people struggling with anxiety, depression, and loneliness and we're seeing uh, and as I uh, address those articles that there's also been changes in substance use patterns uh, we find um, a number of first-time users uh, in terms of self-medication and, and trying to cope with the hard realities that are before us um, in in that uh, realm as well so I guess you know it's always important to define some terms before we go forward. So mental health is you know our ability to recognize our strengths, our ability to cope with the challenges of life, and our ability to give back to the community. And in terms of addiction, and and this is information. Once again, you can get at, at CAMH. Uh, you can Google uh, CAMH, and they have a wonderful uh, resource uh, webpage. Uh, There's tutorials. There's information about current and up-to-date research that's being done in terms of mental health and addiction. And there are treatment services that are also offered. Uh, But uh, it indicates that, you know, if we want to have a sense of what it is we're talking about with addiction, we can, uh, this memory aid, uh, the ABCDE of addiction, uh, the number one, the inability to abstain—that you know, you you, you can't stop using—and you have uh, little control over your behavior. There's uh, cravings, obsessions. Uh, we we might start to um, do this thing called stealing, so that we can access a, a substance. Um, there's the craving or hunger for a substance or a rewarding experience. Uh, there's the decreased ability to recognize major problems. Uh, in terms of behaviors and relationships we're not recognizing that while we do certain things our relationships are, are there's a distance that's being created there's a lack of trust there's uh, animosity resentments and a problematic emotional response the idea that when we don't have uh, the substance of choice that uh, it's, it's very difficult for us to imagine going on often a sense of uh, a love loss and so these are some of the things that we're talking about when we're talking about addiction. Now, specifically what I want to do to kind of shed light on some important information that we want to make sure is on our, our dashboard, expanding our dashboard, I, I want to just kind of quickly review two papers that I came across and actually read word for word some of the information. And then uh, as, as I, I put some more facts on the table... Um, I, I want to kind of ask the question, you know, what do, what do we do next? And uh, how, can we, how can we be well considering that we're dealing with some of these, these challenges? Uh, you know, th- some of the things that have happened has, have caused people to experience difficulty doing things that they were able to do with ease, so we call this like the window of tolerance. Our ability to tolerate certain things, uh, you know, high arousal states has been compromised. And so at one point, you know, before a, you know, the restrictions before a lockdown, someone would get in a vehicle and drive their vehicle without uh, much problem and go to the store and navigate the aisles and purchase food and come home. And now people are reporting, I like, I can't. Can't get in the car. Driving uh, creates a sense of anxiety. I, I don't want to go to the store. I'm feeling uncomfortable around people. I, students who have been having uh, the experience of virtual education now with changes in Ontario, where I'm coming from, uh, the uh, the number of the mandates are changing. Uh, you know, the vaccination uh, vaccination passport mandate is being rescinded. And so, you know, uh, there's a movement from virtual to in-person. So students are going to classes for the first time in, in a number of years and they're experiencing higher rates of, of anxiety. So this is the stuff that that we're attempting to tackle. I mean, we've almost been conditioned in the sense to be afraid of one another. And so how do we how do we go forward? Um, resilience we we're often talking about resilience and the, the importance of you know nurturing and fostering resilience but a lot of us were tapped out and we're seeing things that we haven't seen before we're seeing uh, you know anecdotally uh, younger kids you know uh, in like nine and ten and, and parents are reporting that they're saying that they they want to kill themselves um, because the world has Uh, impacted them in in a way that they're not able to talk about, and they're just retreating, and there's been a loss of joy, and there's this this uncertainty and fear that's crushing. So how do we go forward? But before we get there, let's just look at a couple of these uh, reports here and and see what we've discovered in terms of um, the impact of COVID-19 on substance use. So this paper is from the Science Table, COVID-19 Advisory for Ontario. It's it's a brief about the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on opioid-related harm in Ontario. And its key message, rates of opioid-related harms, particularly fatal overdose, have increased significantly in Ontario, so 60%. During the COVID-19 pandemic and have disproportionately impacted marginalized and racialized people. So we see there's issues right now of um, privilege and in inequity in terms of the way things have played them out, uh, things have played out for them uh, for different people. And, and I think that, you know, on our dashboards, we need to make sure that we don't lose sight of that. Strategies to address this crisis include ensuring uninterrupted and equitable access to addiction, mental health, and harm reduction services, incorporating these services into high risk settings such as shelters, hotels, and encampments or different community centers, adopting harm reduction services to meet current needs, and promoting access to alternative service delivery methods such as telemedicine programs when in person. Services are not available. So we need to, there are still uh, data gaps and we need to kind of continue to monitor uh, the rates of different opioid-related harms. And so this is an ongoing process. And as I said, you know, in terms of the findings, uh, since the onset of COVID-19 pandemic in March 2020, rates of emergency medical services uh, for suspected opioid overdoses have increased by 57% and rates of fatal opioid overdose uh, has increased by 60%. Now, in terms of the people that it's impacting, you know, the the, the subgroups, we're seeing that it's impacting uh, people who live in northern and rural rural communities. We're seeing that uh, people who are unable to afford basic resources and services are being impacted. People experiencing homelessness or housing instability. uh, Men and individuals between the ages of 20 to 49 in neighborhoods with higher ethno-cultural diversity um, and people experiencing incarceration. So it, it's impacting certain groups more than others. And the factors that may have contributed contributed to this are pandemic related stress, social isolation, and, and mental uh, illness, which in turn result in changes in drug use behavior which is kind of what we're talking about here. Um, You know, in terms of the border and travel restrictions, it's created a more erratic and volatile, unregulated uh, drug supply. And it's reduced accessibility to addiction, mental health, and harm reduction services. So we we see that, you know, at one point, we might be talking about, you know, opioid-related harm or fatalities. And now we're talking about drug poisonings because there's been With restrictions and lockdowns, uh, there's been uh, an interruption to the uh, drug supply chain. And so people are getting uh, substances that uh, they think it's substance A, but it's substance B. It's being uh, mixed and contaminated with other things, which could include uh, cocaine. It could include uh, benzodiazepines. And so um, people don't have tolerance for certain things. Uh, they're unknown substances, and they're, they're overdosing. And so a lot of these overdoses are accidental, right? And so it's important for us to recognize that, that this is happening. And for, for a number of uh, the people that are experiencing these uh, overdose uh, fatalities, um, they're first-time users. And what we see is as people are attempting to get through difficult times, they're experimenting with different things in terms of their isolation and that could mean experimenting with different forms of self medication. And so we see that, you know, people are uh, drinking more alcohol. They might be, uh, for the first time, a- experimenting with uh, uh, legal cannabis in uh, Canada. And, uh, or they're uh, explo- experimenting with uh, other substances that they're getting um, from. Questionable sources that that's leading to people um, dying. So th- that's just something I think we have to remember. You know, if we go into another um, lockdown because of a, a new variant in the future, and it's keeping people mentally uh, physically well, uh, but the implication is people are feeling isolated, which is leading to increased feelings of loneliness and that's uh leading to feelings of depression, anxiety, uh suicide rates are, are going up as well, but we see that uh, first time users who might experiment to just try in in a sense to keep their sanity are um putting their lives in jeopardy because they're taking substances that uh they don't know what what is in, in included in that mix and and people are dying. So, you know, what 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 should we be doing differently? Right, and in terms of that answer, the second paper uh, keeps us uh, keeps some thoughts that are important to keep in mind. The second paper, in terms of you know, what should we do? Uh, explores the the impacts of COVID-19 pandemic on substance use treatment capacity in Canada. So this is from the Can- Canadian Centre on Substance Use and Addiction. So we're saying if, you know, these restrictions, these, uh, these um, different mandates, these different lockdowns are having a beneficial effect over here, great. Let's not lose sight of that. But if we're seeing that mental health is being compromised... Um, what will people need to do? Well, they're going to need to reach out for help. But interestingly enough, uh, with the uh, the very first lockdown, a lot of treatment centers were inaccessible to people. Right. So the key findings of this paper says there was a substantial decrease in the availability and capacity of substance use treatment and harm reduction services in the early phase of the pandemic, March to June, due to closures and restrictions. On the number of clients allowed at clinics and inpatient facilities so there's a need there's an increasing need but because of social isolating uh, social distancing because of um, lockdowns uh, reduced capacity while there's a greater need there's a reduced uh, access to these services this decrease along with other factors led many clients returning to or engaging in higher risk substance use and growing wait times for services. So people are attempting to figure out how to get through this without the support, the in-person support. And they're engaging in those high risk use behaviors again. Um, And they're they're hoping that at some point uh, a wait list will, um, while they're on the wait list, that they'll move up the wait list quickly enough and they'll be able to access those services. Uh, another interesting thing to note, and I think this is something that we have to ask ourselves questions about, is the access to substance use treatment services and supports has not returned to pre-pandemic levels. So I'm reading information that's relevant to Ontario. I think it can be extrapolated to other parts of Canada. But I also think if we go um, south of the border, that this is relevant information for what uh, people in the United States might be experiencing as well. Right? So people are not, because the services haven't been available, something's happening that they're not reaching out for help at this point. And we might want to figure out what's happening there and how can we uh, re-engage. Right? I, I think that's why it's important to have conversations like these, to spread awareness about the importance of support services, recognize that there's uh, been a reduced opportunity for these uh, services. People are, some for some reason, not reaching out, and we need to create a re-engagement. We need to at, reach out to to people in, in, in their periods of suffering and let them know that services are um, out there for them. Uh, we're changing because... The mandates and restrictions of changing. And so there's more uh, accessibility, but people need to know that that's the case. So the delivery of care for substance use treatment shifted rapidly to virtual platforms, which had some positive impacts on treatment access. This is, there's positives and negatives to this. There's positives in that, you know, there is a new uh, medium for providing a service uh, for people that have the capacity to receive the service in that way. So if you, know, you have access to a functional internet system and you have a computer, you have access to a place of privacy, uh, you can then access these services. Um, but the availability of virtual care is not equitably distributed and it cannot be completely replaced by the need for in-person treatment options. So these are um, some things that I think are really important to to consider. Uh, this last part, uh, the, my last quote, and and then I'll uh, move away from the papers, is that the response to the COVID-19 pandemic has included many public health measures to contain the spread of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. These measures have substantially affected the provision of and access to services and supports for people who use substances. Some public health measures for COVID-19 have impacted patterns of substance use, the illicit drug supply, and the availability and access to drugs in general. Right. So these are things that we need to just be aware of and mindful of. We're moving out of a lot of the uh, tougher restrictions and lockdowns that we've we've had to push through. But there's always this talk about future variants and, and, uh, you know, future uh, upcoming waves, especially, I think, as we get closer to the the end of the year and we're going into the winter season. And so that's possibly going to be a possibility again. So, you know, what do we do? I, I think, you know, I'd just like to go back to my introductory quote. And it's on my notes here. Asking for help doesn't make you weak. It reveals strength even when you don't feel like it. Even when you don't feel strong. Even when you don't feel strong. And I think there is this, uh, especially in the West, this notion of the rugged individualism where, you know, people have to pull their bootstraps up and get things done by themselves against all odds. You know, we can see this... uh, In uh, the the movies that we watch, there's always this one incredible person who, you know, against all odds, accomplishes something independently, uh, you know, that one person uh, rises up. I think we need to move away from that, that thought. I don't think we need to um, let go of uh, discussions about resilience and Uh, individual personal responsibility but I I think we need to relook at uh, or reframe what it means to uh, ask for help and and I think that's my central message with this discussion as we think about the different things that we need to put on our dashboards and you know this is by no means a comprehensive thought about what needs to be on people's dashboards for some people it's climate change right Um, for for parents, it might be, you know, what what will the uh, economic uh, sustainability look for, uh, in, look like in the future for our kids in terms of access to affordable housing. Um, there are different things, uh, but in in terms of uh, the the idea that I've brought at this moment and I focus on mental health and uh, substance use, the impact of COVID and and the different restrictions and lockdown measures, uh, I think that. I just want to send the message that it's okay to ask for help and asking for help is not a sign of weakness asking for help is a sign of strength it's uh, a recognition of uh, the here and the now it's 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 an inventory taking uh, so that you're able to engage in the next steps to get to where you need to be so you could be both mentally physically and spiritually well. And that's going to look different for different people in terms of things that, that they might need to do. Someone might need to, uh, in this moment, um, somewhere reach out and call a, a helpline or a distress line in this moment. Um, someone might need to uh, reach out and call the police because possibly an experience of, um, violence in the home some someone might decide that they just need to talk to someone they just they just need to recognize that they're not doing well and it might be that that admission to a, a cared loved a, a loving support someone that uh, is interested in us and wants the best for us and just reaching out to that person and saying i'm not well and in the moment when we can say i'm not well so much is possible we no longer have to go through things alone. Uh, someone will be there for us. It will be validating. We'll remember that we're deserving of being loved and being cared for and being supported. And we'll be able to realize the different resources that are out there. And we'll realize we're not alone. So sometimes when we're going through things, one of the biggest challenges is that we think we're alone and we're embarrassed and we don't want to talk to people. There's the shame and there's the guilt. But it's okay to reach out for support. It's okay to ask for help. And it's okay during these difficult times when you find yourself having when you find yourself having to reach out and ask for help and support. It's okay to cry. These all these things are good coping. All these things are green flags. This is the the, uh, the movement towards positive living and good health. And there are a lot of resources out there. But sometimes we need people to walk with us. We need a friendly voice. We need people to love us through it, and it all starts with that courageous moment of saying, "I need help." And I just want to also share the thought that you know, help is going to look different for other people, and for some people, it could be taking a, a, a leave of absence from work. It could be um, going to a counselor, and or therapist. Uh, to get support in terms of managing and dealing with anxiety, uh, depression, or loneliness, and so there are a lot of resources out there. So the, the resources I'd like to share in this moment that I think uh, that I think could help, uh, CAMH is a great resource. There's information on there uh, about mental and um, mental health and and substance use. Uh, there's information on there about how you can navigate COVID with uh, your kids and how you can navigate COVID in the workplace. It's it's a wonderful resource and it will let you know the different things that are accessible in a here and now way in terms of just going online and accessing different activities and tools, but it also directs you to supports that, you know, in terms of treatment services that are available. The other website I'd like to uh, just once again remind everyone is out there Uh, in previous podcasts. I just discussed this often uh, is Anxiety Canada. It's a great website. It helps you recognize what's happening in your body when you're experiencing anxiety so we can become aware of uh, triggers. And it it talks about the ways that we can stand up to anxiety. And it identifies the the list of uh, the different forms that anxiety can take place and lastly the action for happiness it's uh a website that you know it's for people like if someone's experiencing loss in terms of loss of a loved one um their needs are going to look different so i'm not i'm not sensing that their their first step would be going to the action for happiness website i'm sensing that their first step might be you know reaching out and um uh, calling someone on a a, um, a help or distress hotline, and then perhaps getting uh, connected with uh, groups that focus on grieving and, and get support in that capacity. So these are different resources for different people experiencing different things. And as I said, the impact of COVID nineteen on all of our lives means different things for each and every one of us. So I just I'm inviting you in this moment to think about what you might need to put on your dashboard in, in terms of wellness and you know what things or action steps will you need to take in terms of following up with uh, those things that you're identifying as as being important not to lose sight of and not to forget so thank you for joining me for this tip of the iceberg conversation this conversation, like so many other, it feels like a thirty-minute kind of blithering. Uh, it just will not do it justice. Uh, can can we blither? There is a a, a comedian who's passed Joan Rivers, and uh, her her tagline was a question, was the question Can we talk? Great tagline. Uh, unfortunately, I uh, it's not available <laughs> for me. It's it's already been grabbed. But uh, you know. My thought is that whatever I bring to the table, I don't have a monopoly on the truth. I always fact check everything that I share. But, uh, it's just the tip of the iceberg of, uh, a number of conversations that hopefully will spill out from, from this, um, first conversation. And, you know, let's blither and keep the blithering going, uh, with those in your life and, um, Let's see where the conversation will bring us. So thank you for joining me at the Hopeful Humans Cafe. I wish you the best possible in this moment. May the choices you make be the wisest ones possible. Peace, take care, be well, and share.